Yeah, this song is about his mother who died of this cancer that probably could have been cured. And she died trusting God, in her own mind at least, and yet she died of this. And so in his mind, the God that she prayed to, the God that she was appealing to, whatever that was, that failed. It's time for Three Chords and the Truth. In these special episodes of the Apologetics Podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I go looking for God's truth in the movies and in the music that have captured our imagination. To learn more about the Apologetics Podcast, visit theapologeticspodcast.com at an internet near you. To receive our free newsletter, go to theapologeticsnewsletter.com. Thank you so much for joining us on this special Three Chords in the Truth episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Hello, I'm Garrick, and I don't have a bucket list, but if I did, seeing Metallica in concert would be at the top of it. I'm Timothy, and that would be on my bucket list as well. And uh, speaking of crazy things that you don't expect to happen, that, <laughs> that being one of them, yesterday we had a car drive through our front yard at 50 miles per hour and take out the house two doors down from us. And so we're still a little bit in the aftermath of that <laughs> at this particular moment. As you may have guessed, in this episode, we are finally, after three years of this program, we are finally talking about Metallica. got to understand the reason we haven't talked about Metallica is not because we don't really like Metallica. It's precisely because we do like Metallica so much and we wanted to carve out the space. If this has to be a double episode on Metallica, we are both big Metallica fans. And this, the past two or three weeks, I just read a bunch of biographies about Metallica and listened to a lot of Metallica music. And all the time I was saying, it's research, it's research. It's research. Yeah, that's why I'm on YouTube for this many hours a day. It's all research. To kick it all off, to kick off our discussion of Metallica, we are going to have our first installment of Behind the Covers. Just That's right. Behind the Covers, let me explain it so that you understand that this is a family show. Behind the Covers is the segment, the quirky segment of our music episodes in which we will pit two or more bands head-to-head on who performed a particular cover song better than the others. And in this episode, what two covers do we have for them, Timothy? Well, it is two of our favorite bands, Metallica and Van Halen. We know it's going to be a difficult decision right there because these are already two of our favorite bands. And it's a cover of a song that was written by Ray Davies for his band, The Kinks, in 1964. And the name of the song is You Really Got Me. Girl, you really got me going. You got me so I don't know what I'm 
This particular song has been done by Van Halen, and it has been done by Metallica, the Van Halen version. We all know it has the introduction of Eruption that leads into it in 1978. That was a moment, whenever you heard that album the first time, even if it was years later, which it was for me, you realized that something changed about music in that album. But then there's another version of the song by Metallica. 2010, they did a version with the original writer of the song, Ray Davies, the person who originally wrote the song. They did a cover version of it with him. And we've got to decide which is better, Van Halen or Metallica. Folks, you have no idea how difficult a choice it is between Van Halen and Metallica. Garrick, what do you think? Well, before we get into this, I do have an objection. I'm really confused on why we didn't include the versions of this song from Oingo Boingo and the Chipmunks, who also did two covers of this. I mean, I thought we were trying to, you know, like of the field, who did the best version, but you didn't even put those two into consideration. I'm, I'm offended, or if someone's offended, some Oingo Boingo fan out there, super fan, we're going to get hate mail. That's what's going to happen here. The only thing we said kind of pre-recording is this was a far more difficult decision than I thought it was going to be. And in the end, where you land, I really feel is is heavily dependent on how you kind of rate what makes a good cover. And so, yeah, as I'm thinking through it, I'm like, okay, Van Halen, you have the intro, which is fantastic. It's, I mean, it's quintessential Eddie Van Halen, right? And it's a thing of beauty. And then when Van Halen performs the song, they make it theirs, right? It is distinctly Van Halen, but also Van Halen, just their sound, especially with David Lee Roth as the front man, sounds a lot more like the Kinks. It's a glam rock twinge on the song. And so it's this great Van Halen version that sounds pretty close to the original, even the vocals from start to finish, and has a few Van Halen-esque parts of it, right? Well, then you get to Metallica. I had never heard this cover from them before, probably because I don't I don't spend as much time on YouTube as Timothy does. He's got older kids, more time on his hands, things like that. And so I didn't know what to expect, kind of where they'd go with this. And I got to start by a lot of folks say, I didn't think, I didn't know how this was going to work. And that's where I was. But in the end, like, it was fantastic. So then after, you know, spoiler alert, sorry, after Hetfield kind of does the first verse, then Ray Davis himself kind of is a part of it and, and is part of this recording. And, that just kind of adds a, a fun, reminiscent part to it. So in the end, super close, but in my heart, I gave Metallica the edge a little bit in my heart. 
Yeah, I think it does reveal what we like in a cover. What I like in a cover is one that actually changes the song for the future. So I think of one of the great covers of all time, Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower from Bob Dylan's song. And even Bob Dylan admits that Jimi Hendrix's version is now the definitive version of the song. So I I think about that. When I think about this song, here's what I noticed when I listened to the Kinks version, followed by Van Halen's version, followed by Metallica's version. Okay, I I noticed that at that point. So you did it differently. Okay, maybe it would strike you differently. I did it Kinks, Metallica, Van Halen, yeah. So here's what I noticed as I listened to it in that order is that the Metallica version has been shaped at some level by the Van Halen version. In other words, that Van Halen version was so much in their minds that there's some things they pick up from the Van Halen version that they pull into their own version. And what struck me is, my goodness, if Van Halen's version is so influential that it can influence Metallica with the original author of the song (laughs) together, if it can influence them, that's a great cover. It really is. If Van Halen could do that, their cover was so powerful, so ubiquitous, it became so well-known that even Metallica and the original writer of the song can't escape being shaped at least a little bit by the Van Halen version. But in the end, these are both incredible versions of the song. They really are. Yep. So the Van Halen version was the first one I had heard being released in the year of my birth. So it was the first I heard, and for the longest time, the version that I knew. I thought Van Halen, it was their song, which really speaks to another thing that Timothy and I mentioned talking before recording, is that the kinks are just criminally, criminally underrated, at least in the States. I mean, you go look at their songs on Apple Music or wherever you go look at songs, and their top songs are just like, these are some of the greats, the all-time greats of rock and roll. Yeah, they really are. I think the Kinks are one of those bands that influenced so many other bands, and yet they themselves didn't get nearly as well-known as they should have. So let's talk about the first time that we heard Metallica. So let's think about this. Let's go back. We're talking about Metallica today. And what is the first time? Well, when I think about Metallica, first off, they are one of my four favorite bands. For the past about 30-some years, I have had four favorite bands that have not moved for those 30 years. Metallica, King's X, U2, and Van Halen. The order that those are in may change at times. And, you know, I'm one of like four fans of the band King's X that is in my top bands, but those are my four favorite bands. So Metallica is one fourth of my top list of bands. And when I think of Metallica, I have to first think of just my first taste of heavy metal. And that was, wasn't really heavy metal, but it was on the edge of that. And that was Def Leppard's song, Rock of Ages. I heard that. That was my first introduction to really hard rock. And it was the first time I heard a hard rock song played forward. Now, I'd heard a lot of them backwards, but I hadn't heard any <laughs> forwards. And so just for those of you who haven't listened to the program before, I was raised in this very fundamentalist kind of sect, almost cult, in which one of the things that happened a lot, this bizarre level of a lot, was that we'd have people come to our churches who would bring a record player and they would play the records backwards to show us that there were satanic messages on the 
these records, that these bands were putting satanic messages. I heard so much heavy metal backwards in the first several years of my life. But then I remember I was in a car with a friend and he put in Def Leppard Rock of Ages and I had never heard anything that heavy. I know it's not that heavy, really, but I'd never heard that type of kind of anger, of intensity to the music ever before. And I was hooked on that. That was like, this is amazing. I have got to find more of this. For those of you who may be younger than we are, hard rock and metal were not on hit radio. So after the decline of album-oriented rock in the 1970s, so that format, album-oriented rock, kind of declined at the end of the 70s, and then the rise of top 40 radio in the 70s and 80s, heavy metal and hard rock did not get played on the radio at this time in the 1980s. The only place I could hear it was on a college radio station, which for me was in Manhattan, Kansas, and it was Wildcat 91.9. Shout out to Wildcat 91.9 in Manhattan, Kansas, because I would listen to that, and that's where I would get metal and hard rock, as well as on Sundays, which was just a, a really interesting thing. They would play Christian rock and metal on Sundays on this particular radio station in the, in the 1980s. And so that was where I heard for the first time Metallica many years after, about uh, it was in 1987, probably 88, that I first heard Metallica. And I heard the song Four Horsemen from Kill 'Em All. And that was just amazing to hear that. That was the first song I heard of theirs. And from that point forward, Metallica to me was just the pinnacle of what music got to be. I'd heard of Metallica before then, but that was actually the first time I heard a Metallica song it was 87, somewhere in 1987, hearing Four Horsemen from the Kill 'Em All album on Wildcat 91.9 College Radio in Manhattan, Kansas. That's fun. So I think I've said this in the past, but for whatever reason, Timothy's brain is great about remembering moments and even being able to put dates to them and, and all those things. And I can't do that. But this is one. This is one of those times where it's clear as day. It was 1988. So 10-year-old Garrick sees Metallica's first ever music video, which was a video for their song, One right? Their first video that they made releases in 1988. And it's actually, it's that video, which uses, largely, it's made up of clips from a 1971 film, Johnny Got His Gun, Johnny Get Your Gun. I mean, it's I still have never seen this movie, because the video is disturbing enough that I never felt like I needed to see the movie. And it was just such a powerful video. Anyways, this is the video that catapults Metallica into the top 40 for the very first time. And so that's the first time I ever heard Metallica. I can't say whether I remember it was the first time that I'd heard hard rock metal of any sort. I don't remember that. But 
then I become a fan like the rest of the world. But I mean, give me a break. I was only 10 years old. Like the rest of the world, I actually become a Metallica fan three years later when they release what we call the Black Album in 91. And then kind of it was over after that, right? Like I went and found everything I could find of Metallica and just kind of became a lifelong fan. And one of those lifelong fans that can also acknowledge that there are, they've had some albums since then that were less awesome. But yeah, still going strong. Now that the war is through with me, I'm waking up, I cannot see that there's not much left to me. Nothing is real but pain now. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, wake me. So this episode of Three Chords and the Truth, we are looking at one of the songs on the Black Album, which of course is not really called the Black Album. It's just named Metallica, but we all call it the Black Album. It's like the Beatles' White Album, for example, and Led Zeppelin Four, Runes, whatever you want to call that particular album, those there. So it doesn't actually have the name that we call it. We call it the Black Album, but we're looking at the song, The God That Failed. And what we're really going to be wrestling with as we talk about the theological implications of this is is, did God really fail? But before we talk about the God that failed, we've got to talk about just the number of Metallica songs that are based on the Bible. There are so many, and some of them clearly, explicitly, sometimes quoting from the Bible in these songs. Yep. If it's not direct quotes, the explicit direct from imagery is just all over the place. And it's always fascinated me and never taken the time to look into why that is. And I've always assumed that it was largely tied to something going on with Hetfield. Hetfield's always been this strong presence that you could tell without even going deep into any type of research. You could just tell that, that there are deep waters there. Just always have been able to see that. And as he's gotten older, I think that's become just more and more apparent. So yeah, I'm excited to record this episode just because this is always something I've thought about and have never taken a bunch of the time to go see what it is that's going on there. So we have songs, for example, like The Four Horsemen, which is from Revelation 6. It's very clearly from Revelation 6. We have the song Creeping Death. Creeping Death is drawn from Exodus. And even you look at the lyrics of that. Slaves, Hebrews, born to serve the Pharaoh, heed to his every word, live in fear, faith of the unknown one, the deliverer. Wait, something must be done 400 years. You've got some very specific details right there from Scripture. The 400 years, the fact that they're looking for a deliverer to come and rescue them. And it's unclear, is it God? Is it the angel of death from God? Is it Moses? Is it Jesus? We don't really know. It leaves it ambiguous, but you have this deliverer here. And so I want us to first just think about why is Metallica even quoting the Bible? How does Metallica even know about the Bible? How do they? And you're right. It has to do with, with James Hetfield, who of course plays rhythm guitar, vocals, does most of Metallica's lyrics. And one of the things we have to understand to understand James Hetfield is that his parents were very strict Christian scientists, and they lived in near Los Angeles and were very strict Christian scientists. His father, in particular, was a very faithful 
Christian scientist, but also a deep reader of the Bible. One of the things James Hetfield said at one point is whenever my father talked to me, it would be in scripture. His father would talk to him about and in the scriptures. He talks about how his father would read the Bible and weep as he's reading the Bible. And so James Hetfield grows up with a very clear understanding, at least of hearing the words of scripture. But let's think for a little bit about Christian science. This is a good opportunity for us to talk about apologetics with Christian science and how do we engage that? How do we understand that? Christian science is a little bit like grape nuts. And what I mean by that is grape nuts aren't grapes and they aren't nuts, but yet they're called grape nuts. And in the same way, Christian science isn't science and it isn't Christian, but it gets called Christian science. And so we've got to understand Christian science about this. And so now you've got, yeah, Christian science is like grape nuts. If we were a Wikipedia article at this point, we would say not to be confused with Scientology, and we would link you to something completely different. So it's important to know that those two are very different things, not to go down any rabbit trails. Yeah. And and it also is not a serial, even though we've used that analogy right there. Right, right. (laughs) Not to be confused with a serial. So to understand Christian science, we really have to think about the late 19th century. There's a height of this movement called American transcendentalism. And there is a lot of emphasis on healing with your mind. To us, this sounds crazy in so many different ways. But remember, medical knowledge was still growing at that time. And a lot of times somebody would be as likely to get well as not to get well if they went to a doctor at that time, especially. And and so there was a real emphasis on mind healing, healing through your mind to think your way into being well. Yeah, not like telepathy. I am healing other people with my thoughts. But this inner thing, a mental state, having an effect, a result in in the external, right? So if the material world, here, here's kind of some fundamental beliefs, some assumptions behind what's going on, right? That one, the material world is actually a result of your mental state, okay? So That sounds weird, but reality as you see it is what it is because of how you're constructing reality in your mind, right? What you're seeing, what you're experiencing on the outside isn't real or it's not what's really real in some sense. And again, like so many things we talk about, there's a spectrum of how people would explain this within Christian science, but largely a lot of what you see and experience and whatnot is a bit of an illusion is one way to say. And a second, a second fundamental is that prayer brings about healing. This prayer is different than what's coming to your mind when you hear this, right, Timothy? Right. So it's like we think about prayer as a petition or a supplication, asking God to please help us in some way, guide us in some way. That's how we think of prayer. That's not what Christian scientists mean when they say prayer. Prayer for them is sort of an inner argument, an inner dialogue of becoming convinced that matter is unreal. So you're trying to convince yourself that the material world is unreal and that there is no person to be healed. There is no real material body. There is no matter. There is actually no illness. The first Matrix movie, as it comes out, when Neo is visiting the Oracle and he's sitting in the waiting room and and he's sitting next to the child who's bending the spoon, doing the tricks and whatnot, and Neo gives it a crack and isn't able to do what the same thing the child is. And, And the child gives him the secret, and that is realizing that 
there's no spoon. It doesn't exist. It's something that is a non-reality outside of yourself. And once you realize that, once you realize that it's just a figment of your imagination, but it's a figment that you can control and you can, since it's coming from your mind, then with your mind, you can do whatever you want with it. And that's in a sense, <laughs> that's a bit like the kind of prayer, healing prayer that we're talking about. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. This all begins in 1875 when Mary Baker Eddy publishes this book called Science and Health. And by the end of the 19th century, Christian science is actually the fastest growing religion in the United States, believe it or not. There are 270,000 members of the Christian scientist movement by 1936 and the census of 1936. Over a quarter million people believed all of this and were following all of this by 1936. Now, it was on decline from that point forward. But nonetheless, there are a significant number of people who still believe this. And James Hetfield's parents back in the 1960s and 70s believed in this particular perversion of Christianity, this particular teaching, this cult, we might say, in some sense, even to the point that he had to get a waiver not to participate in health or physical education classes, because in those, he would learn things that were contradictory to Christian science. And so that was the context in which he grew up. His father devoted to Christian science, reading the Bible, but reading it through this very twisted lens of Christian science. And then he wasn't allowed to participate in anything that would challenge that in his school or in his daily life. And so in 1976 came sort of the first blow to him when his parents divorced and his father abandoned them. He talks about this a lot of times in interviews about how his father wrote a note to the family, but it wasn't even written to him. His father just gradually, his stuff started disappearing and then he was gone. He was abandoned. And so this father who had been really faithful in Christian science, divorced his mom and left the family. But then the real blow came in 1979 when James Hetfield was 16 and his mother was diagnosed with a very treatable form of cancer, but she refused medical treatment. And instead she relied on Christian science, quote unquote, prayer to be healed. And Christian science doesn't actually forbid people to seek medical treatment, but what they tell people is that the healing prayer works better without medical treatment. And so she really believed that. She followed that. And so she died of cancer because she put her faith in this religion, this faith that actually didn't produce what it said it would produce. And so he learns the Bible through this twisted faith. He loses his father. His mother dies, and these are the things that really shaped James Hetfield. And after this, he moves in with his older brother, and his older brother has a, has a set of drums, and he plays the drums, and then he eventually switches to guitar. So it's really similar at that point to Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen. Two switches from drums to guitar that music was made better by, right? Like, can you imagine what the history of music would look like without those two occurrences? And there's a couple of different movements in music that were happening at the time that Metallica started. And one of those is punk. We talk a lot about punk from time to time. I don't think either of us are real huge punk 
fans, but yet it has a real effect on music. And we talked about the Kinks earlier. The Kinks weren't a punk band, but they did have a lot of the attitude of punk music. And so they really kind of pioneered some early forms of music that would get picked up by those who were the punk artists. But the punk artists are like the Ramones and the Clash, pretty much anyone early on who has the before it. So the Kinks, the Ramones, the Clash, the Cure, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, that's all punk. Anything that has the in front of it is, is punk, except for Southern Seminary, which isn't. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless. So punk. So punk. So punk. <laughs> and so it was just this reaction, really, against how polished rock had become. Think about what was going on. There was this whole notion of people doing amazing guitar stuff like Jimi Hendrix and so on like that. And there was all of this music was really, really produced. Queen, Led Zeppelin, lots of production. And so those that were into punk, what they were saying is, look, we're done with that. We're tired of that. It's gotten overblown. It's become this huge establishment. We want to strip everything back down and go to the essence of rock and roll. And so they created punk, which was this do-it-yourself, stripped-down, fast, angry music. And the whole idea was to start over from nothing. Of course, it's absurd. You can't really do that. You can't start from zero. But they said 1976, when punk begins, is year zero. And we're going to ignore everything that happened before us. And we're going to go forward and have anger at every existing system, reject everything. This is the punk movement. And the punk ethos is this fast, angry, stripped down Music. So that's one movement that's going on when Metallica begins. The other one is the new wave of British heavy metal. So some people call it Nobwam, N-W-O-B-H-M, Inwabam. And I found that out. I didn't realize that until I was in Australia and I found out that they pronounce it as a word when they're talking about music. So it was kind of like ACDC in Australia. They call them Akadaka. They talk about new wave of British heavy metal. They actually pronounce that. So I don't know if this is just an Australia thing or what to pronounce everything, but I, that was the first time in Wabam that I heard it pronounced as a word, but it's the new wave of British heavy metal. And that's kind of the next step on the path that started with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath is really what it is. So you get these two movements, punk and the new wave of British heavy metal that are happening at the same time that Metallica starts. In the new wave of British heavy metal, there's a lot in their lyrics of mythology and fantasy drawing from Lord of the Rings and from science fiction. Some of the later ones, they have all sorts of satanic imagery in theirs. Their shows are really theatrical with outrageous outfits and kind of medieval and classic classical themes. These are bands like Iron Maiden and Diamond Head that really tried to have these complex song structures. But here's the thing, is the punk and new wave of British heavy metal were at opposite ends of the spectrum. They are the opposites of each other. One is doing stuff big, theatrical, amazing guitar work that are doing these harmony guitars, all these things like that. That's new wave of British heavy metal. Punk is simple, stripped down, no guitar solos, against the establishment at every level. You have these two extremes here. And in the midst of this, 1981, Lars Ulrich, who of course is the drummer in Metallica, he puts an advertisement in a Los Angeles newspaper and wants to jam these new wave of British heavy metal songs. He wants to find somebody to play these songs with him. So this is Lars Ulrich. He's looking for somebody to do this. In the midst of this, he went to Metal Blade Records early on in its history 
and asked if his band could record a song for their upcoming compilation, which was called Metal Massacre. Now, here's the problem with him asking that he didn't actually have a band yet, but he got signed to be able, or at least got an agreement for him to be able to put this song on there from his band that didn't yet exist at this point. And so they did, (laughs) actually. And so we end up with this. This is the beginnings of Metallica. This is one of the interesting things about Metallica. It doesn't have any earlier name. It's not like most of the bands we look at, they had some earlier name, and then they eventually got the name that they have. Metallica is the only name that Metallica has ever had. And it's the thing, when you have a name that awesome, you don't need another name. You do not need another name at this point. And so the name Metallica, actually, it was a reference book in England that was published that was about heavy metal bands. It was this really obscure reference book about heavy metal bands. And Lars Ulrich had a friend who was getting ready to launch a fan magazine. And he said, should I call it Metal Mania or should I call it Metallica? And Lars Ulrich said, oh, Metal Mania is a much better name, not because he thought it was, but because he heard Metallica yes. and he wanted to name his band Metallica. So he took Because <laughs> you know if they landed on Metal Mania, the story would be who knows what their name would be today, but their story, it, hey, their original name was Metal Mania, and then they and realized, they realized that 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 was a terrible name. name. <laughs> <laughs> Good name for a magazine, terrible name for a band. Yeah, that's funny. So they had Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield answered that, but also they ended up adding a guy named Dave Mustaine as their other guitar player. And he came and he showed up for the audition, and he was sitting there just playing around on his guitar, and they looked at his equipment. He had a great guitar, great amp, good pedal board. And he said, am I going to audition or what? And they said, nah, you've got the job. <laughs> you, you got the gear, you got the job. You have awesome equipment. And so they they recorded this demo called Power Metal was the name of the, the demo. And it is both immature and amateur. <laughs> it really is. The Metallica that recorded that, we would never be talking about that Metallica. It was about sex and kind of this macho metal. Some of the lyrics on one of their songs were, our fans are insane, going to blow this place away with volume higher than anything today. <laughs> These are not the lyrics that persist because it was just way too mindless for the new wave of British heavy metal, which was doing fantasy and sci-fi, things like that. But it wasn't angry enough for punk. It was just lame through and through. And so that was what they did on this demo. A lot of the lyrics that were the worst were contributed by Dave Mustaine. He really, at that point, just was doing sexual lyrics, basically, was what he was doing at that time. And that's what he contributed. But then some changes started to come to Metallica. Yeah. In 82, Cliff Burton comes on as their new bassist. And Cliff Burton, for those that know Metallica is a name that today, still all these years later, and it's been decades since he has had been with Metallica because of his death, but we'll get to that later, adds a depth and an influence, in fact, some classical music influence, which would continue to have influences with Metallica long after Cliff Burton's time. But in, in anyways, 82, Cliff Burton joins on with the band. 
and Dave Mustaine, who was a little bit free with the alcohol, liked to drink a bit. And certainly once Cliff comes on the scene, you just have this massive contrast between the depth of these two guys. And it just becomes apparent that Dave Mustaine doesn't fit with the future. Yeah, Dave Mustaine, he forms Megadeth almost as a as a backlash against Metallica. Remember, Metallica's first album is Kill Em All, and his first album with Megadeth is Killing Is My Business, and Business Is Good. And that's kind of his first punch at Metallica. And so there, there's a long conflict between Dave Mustaine and Metallica, but I think in the end, his lyrics get better. He becomes a better musician, and he really picks up and takes up the mantle of that Black Sabbath, new wave of British heavy metal, and takes that to another level. And also, in the early 2000s, Dave Mustaine becomes a Christian, which is just kind of a bizarre thing. And I don't know what exactly he follows or anything like that and how he structures that, but he at least claimed to have become a Christian in the early 2000s. I saw him in concert several years ago at the Experience Hendrix Tour. He was one of the guitarists, and he just was is an incredible guitar player, even playing the blues and playing Hendrix, doing stuff like that. He was there at that particular concert. And Megadeth is great in its own right, but certainly there are significant differences between the two. I've always really enjoyed Megadeth, but they never captured me, right, the way that Metallica did. And so when Dave leaves, then he is replaced by the silent assassin. That's that's what I call him. I don't know if anyone else calls him that. Kirk Hammett, who is just, I don't know if I've ever heard the guy say more than 10 words at a time. But the man on a guitar is just unreal. Unreal. This really forms Metallica. I mean, this does form Metallica. It rounds them out. Cliff, he introduced these technical aspects that others hadn't. Kirk really brings some bluesy stuff to it. I mean, he really is able to play the blues. Listen to a song, a more recent one, like A Blind Man's Cry, that the Metallica does a version of. And you really hear that that Kirk can play the blues as well. And so we see that Metallica becomes more complex and yet at the same time more soulful. And then they start playing faster and tighter. And nobody knows exactly how that happened. <laughs> but according to some of the, the reports of it, Lars would, he when he was playing the drums, he would speed up during the song and people would just follow along just and they would realize on. it sounded amazing really, really fast. And they developed this super fast type of a picking and everything like that. I don't know for sure, but they developed this brilliant, fast metal that really is exemplified on the 1983 album, Kill 'Em All. And that was the first album, Kill 'Em All. Yeah, there's still some mindless macho metal. There's this song called Metal Militia that is this terrible song on there. But you start to see this growth in it because there's a growth in what they're doing. James Hetfield, he took two songs they'd done before, Mechanics, which was one of Dave Mustaine's really kind of body, vulgar ones that he had, and he turned it into The Four Horsemen, which draws from the Bible. And uh, he turned Jump Into the Fire, which was another one of Dave Mustaine's really kind of vulgar songs. He turned it into a song about the final judgment. And so you see this growth where they're taking these songs and they're taking them a different direction, and they kind of decide to avoid sex in their lyrics. And Lars Ulrich, one time, the way he put it was, he says, we have nothing against sex. Sex in our lyrics, though, 
though, is just another cliche that's easily avoidable, as is Satanism. He just points out, look, we just started doing that. That's not what we're doing. But one of the results that they probably didn't plan or think about is that they had female fans that were actually committed to their music, who liked their music, that were more likely to enjoy it because it wasn't this very macho sexual lyrics that they had had before. And so you've got here what happens on the Kill 'Em All album is that you've got the anger, the speed, the stripped down sound of punk, and you've got the complexity of the new wave of British heavy metal. And then you've got this staccato tightness and speed that nobody had ever really heard before. Whereas punk and new wave of British heavy metal had been opposites. They bring them together and then they add it and do it faster and better than anyone had done it before. Which would also contrast a lot with another thing going on at this time, early, especially mid-80s, with glam rock, which everyone knows, Timothy and I, we love. Like, we love ourselves some cheeseball, glam, 80s heavy metal. But Metallica's is very much and intentionally the opposite of that, right? They, they left behind not only the lyrical cliches that Timothy mentions, but things like outrageous costumes and makeup and a certain type of show and set and whatnot. They cut off t-shirts and jeans. They look like your next door neighbors who liked to drink a lot of beer and play loud music. They really do. And that's one of the things I think is attractive to people. You look at them, you're like, I can look like that. I can actually look like that. You don't look at Striper and say, I can look like that, nor do you even say, I want to look like that. <laughs> but you look at Metallica and you're like, Man, those guys, and as they've aged, it's like, I can still look like yeah. I mean, look. Listen, Kirk Hammett <laughs> does wear the occasional leather pants, right? I mean, that's never going to be me, but it was, it was never, it's still completely different from everything else that was around him at that time. So, so you have this really creative moment here with Kill 'em All in which all these things come together and they are playing this at a level of skill that just hadn't been heard before. This was new. This was different. They follow this album up with Ride the Lightning, and you start to see these themes of mortality. That really becomes one of the things, looking inward, thinking about your own mortality, songs like For Whom the Bell Tolls, the song Creeping Death, which is about the plagues of Exodus. You've got that in Ride the Lightning. And then comes in 1986, which is, as we've already established many times, is the greatest year ever for music, they produce what I think is the greatest metal album of all time. I have which never is heard you Master say Master of that. Puppets. It is the greatest metal album of all time. Now, I'm not saying it's the greatest rock album. I'm not even saying it's the greatest Metallica album of all time. But in terms of a pure metal record, there is nothing like master of puppets, nor will there ever be the sheer complexity and speed that they're playing in terms of on the guitar trying to do that. They're doing something that's almost from another planet, it feels like at times. And they really, their lyrics mature, mortality, anger, introspection, struggling with issues of sanity and things like that. All of those things that they're looking at, there's a maturity in that. And it's the first heavy metal album ever to be selected for the archives of the Library of Congress as something that is of cultural significance to the point that it needs to be preserved. But it is truly brilliant. Just even thinking about Master of Puppets, which is about drug addiction, the lyrics of that, pain monopoly, ritual misery, chop your breakfast on a mirror, taste and you will see, more is all you need. I mean, just powerful lyrics describing addiction. Come for me, master. 
it's just a phenomenal album. We could do one entire episode just on the album Master of Puppets if we wanted to. But that year 1986 for them also is horrible, horrible tragedy. There's this bus crash in Sweden. The bus falls on top of Cliff Burton. There's guilt that they feel in the midst of that. The way this happened was they'd each drawn a card to see who would get the best bunk. And he got a particular bunk that he was then thrown from the bus and the bus crushed him in this horrible bus crash in September of 1986. And so this album, this high point really in terms of metal is followed by this horrible horrible tragedy that happens. And Jason Newstead then replaces Cliff Burton on the bass. He had been in a, a band called Flotsam and Jetsam, which interestingly, Flotsam and Jetsam, that comes from the book, The Hobbit. That's where that comes from. That's a chapter in The Hobbit is where the name of his band came from. But he joins as their new bass player. And then they move into this album that really becomes one of the first ones that people start to hear about them on a broad basis. And that is the Injustice for All album in 1988. This is the album that the song One comes from, as we've said, becomes their first music video. It's their first song, kind of looking at it historically, that is suddenly heard from the wire audience, right? It's the song that moves beyond just cassette tapes of of their core fans and obscure college radio stations. And in 89, so again, that song propels them for the first time to the top 40. They make it to number 35 on the charts, I believe. That doesn't make them mainstream, but it paved the way for when they do release the Black Album. In 89, Rolling Stone magazine names them as, <laughs> this is so awesome, one of the top 10 bands that you'll never hear on the radio. I mean, that, that says a lot, right? You, I mean, you think about radio today. I think radio still exists. I don't know because I don't listen to it. But when we think of radio today, you think of any song that becomes popular, which one does become popular, radio just kills it, right? And this this still wasn't the, you didn't hear them on the radio. You probably saw them on MTV. You probably had never heard of them before if you were a certain type of person like 10-year-old Garrick. And then you went and got the cassette. Maybe you got the cassette. Because again, I didn't own a Metallica album until the Black Album. And at that point, CDs were becoming a thing. Yeah, so what you have is it was making it on the charts. So it was making it on the singles charts. People were buying this, but it still wasn't getting played on the radio, even though people were buying these records by the thousands. Then in 1990, they began recording the album that would simply be titled Metallica. And this is a moment. So Master of Puppets, greatest metal album ever. This one, one of, if not the greatest rock album ever. Certainly one of the top five greatest rock albums ever. It's not thrash. It's not pure thrash, but it is pure awesome. All the way through the Black Album, it really is. Well, Timothy, have you looked at what else came out in 91? It was a month before Nevermind. So one month after this was released, Nevermind gets released. So in 1991, Garrick Bailey is 13 at this point, and I can't go through the full list, but all of these great albums, like for Garrick's story, it's almost like 91 could be one of the greatest years ever because you do have Nevermind by Nirvana, you have the Black Album, you have Pearl Jam's 10, you have Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers, you have Dangerous by Michael Jackson, which people 
including me, still listening to Michael Jackson at this point. You have Octune Baby by U2, Out of Time by R.E.M. You have Emotions by Mariah Carey. You laugh all you want, but I had a poster of Mariah Carey from Emotions on my wall. But it was. It was an amazing year, and and often people don't recognize that Metallica their big breakthrough album comes at the same time as grunge is coming. And, and people think that those happened separately, but those actually happened simultaneously. This album, as we said, one of the greatest albums ever recorded. It cost three remixes, $1 million, and three marriages. Because everybody in the band that was married got divorced during this album. So this was clearly a stressful album. A lot of things were coming together in positive ways, but also negative ways. But by this point, Metallica had sold 70 million albums, but they had not been on mainstream radio ever. 70 million albums, and they had never been on mainstream radio. And for the first time, here they are making the radio and wide rotation on MTV, just constant rotation on MTV as well. Enter Sandman, Sad But True, some of the greatest songs ever, as well as the one we're looking at today, The God That Failed. And so we see on this album these themes of mortality, of inward darkness. We start to see this theme that's only been hinted at before in Metallica's music of this anger and faith and struggle to forgive. You start to see that. That really works its way out on their later albums as well, but you first start to see it on this particular album that has the song, The God That Failed. I Many listeners hear this as if it's an atheistic anthem, but if you think this is an atheistic anthem, this song, The God That Failed, you've missed the point of this particular song. we got to remember what has shaped Hetfield here. And also, we got to remember that questioning God or even accusing him of, of failing, well, we've talked about this issue of, of pain and suffering and, and evil. We've talked about the Psalms and how the Psalms make way and permit and provide a framework even for the entirety of, of human emotion, including accusations of God being absent, of abandoning, of forsaking. That's no different than the words of the God that failed. In fact, if you're an atheist, you don't believe in a God to accuse of failing. And so, yeah, it completely misses the point. And Knowing James's story makes sense of a lot of what goes on here. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. 
apologetics.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. from you Yeah.